about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John's Climacus, and we're picking up with a new step here this evening on page 158, if you're following along in the blue, hard blue volume. Uh, page 158, step 18, on insensibility and the deadening of the soul and the death of the mind before the death of the body. A rather lengthy uh, uh, subtitle, uh, but it does capture the, the essence of what John will describe here. And this is perhaps one of the most difficult things to deal with in the spiritual life. Uh, just because I think when one has reached this state, uh, for whatever reason, it is very hard to emerge from it, uh, that once perception becomes distorted or uh, one becomes exactly what the word describes, there's a kind of insensibility, a deadening on a spiritual level to the things of God, and as well as the desire for prayer and other ascetical practices. And so to try to emerge from it becomes very difficult. Uh, the best thing is to not uh, enter into it if possible, but uh, John does give some small remedies uh, towards the end uh, that uh, are to be practiced throughout one's spiritual life to help preserve us from it. So again, we're on page 158. Insensibility, both in the body and in the spirit, is deadened feeling, which from long sickness and negligence lapses into loss of feeling. So interesting, lo loss of, of feeling that, uh, that one begins to lose that hunger, that desire, uh, that longing for God and for the things of God, for the life of prayer. Uh, virtue seems no longer to be attractive. Prayer seems not to bear any fruit or to, and so to have no value or one begins to question the value of it. And uh, sometimes he says from long sickness or negligence. So a person can be laid out and oftentimes that can be a very difficult time for prayer. Uh, sometimes illness can make us focus on the self and uh, we can lose a kind of vigilance there. And, uh, but also then negligence as a whole. These are two things that can, can lead to it. Insensibility, he goes on to say, is negligence that has become habit, benumbed thought, the child of predispositions, a snare of for zeal, the noose of courage, ignorance of compunction, a door of dis to despair, the mother of forgetfulness, which gives birth to the loss of the fear of God. And then she becomes a daughter of her own daughter. So uh, um, a forgetfulness that bears the loss, uh, brings to us to the loss of a fear of God, then gives rise to uh, what was previous, the previous daughter, which was despair. And uh, so it's just reading the definition. And again, this is how John begins each step by defining in a, a very focused way, the particular passion or virtue that uh, we are dealing with. Uh, this is a negligence that has become habitual. So like the other passions, something that doesn't happen uh, just on occasion uh, from laziness, but habitually, habitually being lazy in regards to one's prayer or negligence, negligent in one's prayer life. 
uh, until it becomes deeply rooted. Benumbed thought. So it's not simply uh, thought that has been ordered and simplified and directed toward God, but a numbing of the thought. So a kind of internal emptiness that is experienced. And we've talked about this before, that we aren't seeking through, say, praying something like the Jesus prayer uh, to empty the mind uh, and to desire nothing. Uh, what we are seeking is this radical simplicity of thought uh, directed toward God so that all of our devotion and love and whatever we might be doing would be directed towards him and that our desire for him would grow over the course of time. So we aren't engaging in the practice of the Jesus prayer or fasting in order to alter our mental state uh, to such an extent that we no longer feel anything, uh, nor again, are we Stoics. Uh, and so this is really a state that he's describing here that uh, we're almost, it's a kind of spiritual depression, I think would be perhaps the best way to describe it. And uh, a kind of darkness and despair that overcomes the soul and makes it uh, very difficult to desire the higher things to and especially to desire God. The child of predispositions so an interesting little thought there that we can be in some ways predisposed because of our character, our personality towards this, uh, which is an interesting thought that they would see that, that some uh, individuals can be more melancholic, for example, in their personality, or that can be more of a danger for them, that they can slide easily into this kind of darkness of mood. And, uh, Many saints, uh, for, for this reason, uh, talk about maintaining a kind of joyfulness all the way back to St. Paul. Uh, Gaudete te semper, rejoice always. Again, I tell you, rejoice. Uh, that it's much easier to grow in the spiritual life, the saints tell us, when we are able to maintain that joyful, joyfulness of heart. When we find ourselves slipping into melancholic moods, uh, it can be very difficult then because we lose that and can lose that fundamental desire for the things that are good or lose desire for all things. And, uh, and so this is something to be guarded against. And especially if we do have a kind of predisposition to be able to acknowledge that uh, honestly about ourselves so that we are keeping an eye on that, that we maintain a certain level of focus in the spiritual life, avoiding idleness, uh, doing everything that we can to uh, keep ourselves from slipping in that direction. A snare for zeal. And so it swallows up uh, uh, anything within us that would motivate us in the spiritual life. Uh, so a kind of anhedonia that we don't desire anything. We have no desire for, for anything at all. The noose of courage. So, you know, when one falls into this dark state, one can become fearful of everything, uh, even what is unknown. And I think uh, he even uses these words further along in the text, the unknown and the unexpected uh, can be something that uh, becomes fearful for us. And that uh, courage can draw, lack of courage can draw us even further down into darkness. We fear what opening ourselves up to God and living a life of deep prayer and uh, a life dedicated to him might be. And so again, then that motivation is stripped from us. Ignorance of compunction. So we begin to lose sight of uh, the, our last judgment or the brevity of our life that leads to the kind of compunction that we've talked about and that John has talked about, this kind of uh, perpetual state of uh, repentance, of turning toward God. And so when we fall into the state of insensibility, uh, we become blind to it and its importance uh, within the spiritual life of cultivating repentance on a daily basis. The door to despair, the mother of forgetfulness, 
which gives birth to the loss of fear of God. So we begin to forget God and forget to think of him, which gives birth then to the loss of fear of him and then sort of leads us back in to the things already mentioned. And so he goes on to say, the, and then she becomes the daughter of her own daughter. And if you look at the footnote there, uh, loss of the fear of God is the daughter of forgetfulness, which is the daughter of insensibility. Then the loss of fear of God in turn gives birth to insensibility. So when we lose this fundamental fear of God, the otherness of God, the brevity of our life, uh, but also the, the, the greatness of our dignity, for which we will, and the gift that has been given to us for which we are responsible in our life. All these things become lost to us or we begin to forget them. Anything in the initial uh, definition that strikes anyone? Okay. All right. He who has lost sensibility is a witless philosopher, a self-condemned commentator, a self-contradictory windbag, a blind man who teaches others to see. He talks about the healing, healing a wound and does not stop irritating it. He complains of sickness and does not stop eating what is harmful. He prays against it and immediately goes and does it. And when he has done it, he is angry with himself. And the wretched man is not ashamed of his own words. I'm doing wrong, he cries, and eagerly continues to do so. His mouth prays against his passion, and his body struggles for it. He philosophizes about death, but he behaves as if he were immortal. He groans over the separation of soul and body but drowses along as if he were eternal. He talks of temperance and self-control, but he lives for gluttony. So the this most striking part of, of this, I think, is the first couple of lines, a witless philosopher, a self-contradictory windbag, and a blind man who teaches others to see. So one who can speak about the faith and speak about the spiritual life and will continue to do so, uh, even sort of putting on a kind of mask as if one is living it. And yet in everything that he's doing in the course of his life is the exact opposite. And uh, so he's not embracing uh, the very thing that he is, is teaching. And, uh, and so in the end, his uh, teaching then will ring hollow for those who are listening to him. And uh, this is true, I think, of preaching as a whole. Uh, if it's not rooted in this experiential knowledge, the father said, then uh, it's no longer the theology that comes from God, knowledge of God, but rather uh, demonic theology. And uh, we talked in the past about Jesus referring to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. And this is the image that comes to mind specifically with this step. If you remember that uh, to come into contact with a dead body, what would be to make oneself ritually impure, unclean. And so the hillsides where people were buried were often whitewashed wherever there was a grave. So there would be spotted on, on a hillside would be uh, these places with glistening white tombs. And one of the reasons for that is so people could avoid them as they're traveling through the countryside. And so Jesus is saying that even coming into contact with the scribes and the Pharisees is like coming into contact with a dead body. You become, you become impure yourself so to avoid them basically this is why we can understand why they hated him so much and wanted to do away with them because he was undermining their authority or rather they were and i think he was uh simply pointing it out but this is the perfect image i i think for uh not only one who's struggling with insensibility but the one who continues to teach as we find in this uh second paragraph that he becomes like a whitewashed tomb. 
so listen to what they say, but do not do what they do, and as, as Christ tells us. Uh, he groans over the separation of soul and body, but drowses along as if he were eternal. He talks of temperance and self-control, but lives for gluttony. He reads about the judgment and begins to smile. He reads about vainglory and is vainglorious while actually reading. So interesting that, you know, reading and talking about uh, the last judgment and talking about it with a smile on the face, you know, as, uh, you know, or trying to find the humor in it, which betrays, uh, you know, on the surface, it might not seem uh, to speak to us of this particular malady. Uh, but John is saying that it actually does. The, the thing that one would be mournful over, uh, this individual actually smiles about as he talks about it. So it shows that it really hasn't taken root deep within, within his heart. Uh, he reads about vainglory and is vainglorious while actually reading. So you know, talks in order or reads in order to be heard, that there is a kind of pleasure that one receives from doing that, uh, a kind of self-esteem or being esteemed in the eyes of others. And this is always the danger of those who are in positions of teaching or talking about the faith, that the focus can be taken off of Christ and placed easily back on oneself, even as you're talking about religious things. And uh, it's easy at times for individuals to idealize someone in particular who seems to speak well about the faith. And John warns about that in some of the coming steps, uh, that to be praising individuals indiscriminately, flattering them is actually to take up a demonic position, is to become a stumbling block for them. Uh, because in flattering them, you're, you're uh, uh, sort of strengthening their ego. And uh, this puts them in a dangerous situation. Uh, he repeats what he has learned about vigil and drops asleep on the spot. He prays his prayer, but runs from it as from the plague. He blesses obedience, but he's the first to disobey. He praises detachment, but he's not ashamed to be spiteful and to fight for a rag. When angered, he becomes bitter, and he is angered again at his bitterness. He does not feel that after one defeat, he is suffering another. Having overeaten, he repents and a little later again gives way. He blesses silence and praises it with a spate of words. He teaches meekness and during the actual teaching frequently gets angry. So the, the picture the, that John is painting uh, becomes more and more ugly as we go along. And it has more to do with the sickness here that uh, um, it is sort of like a living death, almost like a, a spiritual leprosy, uh, one might say, uh, because the soul becomes more and more darkened and, and corrupt as one goes along. So to teach meekness, but is being one who frequently gets angry with others without being able to recognize the inconsistency within that. Having woken from the passion, he sighs and shaking his head, he again yields to passion. He condemns laughter and lectures on mourning with a smile on his face. Before others, he blames himself for being vainglorious and in blaming himself, is only angling for glory for himself. He looks people in the face with passion and talks about chastity. While frequently frequenting the world, he praises those who live in stillness without realizing that he shames himself. He extols almsgivers and reviles beggars. All the time, he is his own accuser, and he does not want to come to his senses 
I will not say cannot. So the last phrase is striking. He, John says, I will not say cannot, that the individual still has the capacity to see these things and to repent. And yet because of the instant sensibility that has become habitual, uh, does not take the steps to overcome uh, the very thing that he finds himself mired in. But uh, again, the image presents us, uh, John writes, are all these internal contradictions the same as hypocrisy? Or is, is that a different malady? I think hypocrisy is certainly one of the, the facets of it, if not one of the main ones, because uh, uh, as we see that there are constant contradictions here between what is said and what is done, or what is taught and what is actually thought. And, uh, and so again, I think this draws us back to our Lord's critique of the scribes and the Pharisees that externally they knew the, the law inside and out. They could quote the scriptures from memory uh, and objectively or on an external level, they seemed to, to live a very ordered and virtuous life. But internally, what was in their hearts was quite different. It betrayed something quite different. Uh, that there was a kind of uh, anger and hostility that, uh, that guided them or blinded them, uh, especially when it came to hearing the truth themselves or having their, their faults uh, pointed out to them. We see how quickly they move uh, from the meekness of being spiritual teachers to outright hatred and uh, wanting to take Jesus to the brow of a hill and to throw him off. Uh, and how quickly they excommunicate him from the, the synagogues. And, uh, and so in many ways, they, they do embody this. I think what, where this goes further is, uh, again, the habitual nature of it and the melancholic nature that often uh, is tied to it as well, that makes it very difficult to, to crawl out of this kind of self-created hell to crawl out of this pit. Number four, I've seen many people like this hear about death and terrible judgment and shed tears. And with the tears still in their eyes, they eagerly go to a meal. And I am amazed, was amazed how this tyrant, this stink pot of gluttony by complete insensibility can grow so strong as to turn the tables even on mourning. And so uh, John is saying here that mourning, which is one of the most powerful aspects of the spiritual life that gives rise to compunction and draws one into repentance and back towards God, that this, this passion can disrupt it in, in the middle of it manifesting itself in a person's life. So a person can be reflecting upon their judgment and shedding tears. And he says, in the next moment, they can turn to go eat something, to have a meal, and rather than turning to prayer or to fasting. And, uh, and you know, it's not very difficult, I think, for us to imagine uh, ourselves treading this path uh, and perhaps we, we see it more often than we, we realize, this subtle movement away from the things that God has set before us because our minds and our hearts have been darkened in one way or another. And it can be surprising that we can be in the midst of things that are very powerful in our spiritual life. We maybe have even received great spiritual blessings from God in our life, surrounded by, you know, those of, of faith who support us, or that God has protected us, you know, from, you know, many evils, and yet we can lose sight of that very quickly. Uh, often the question can turn, what have you done for me lately, to God, uh, very quickly, you know, we can forget all the many blessings 
that we've experienced uh, from him when we find ourselves going through uh, a trial or a dark period like this. The, the mind and the heart is ever so changeable. And this uh, step shows us just how quickly it can change and, and frighteningly so. Uh, it brings back to mind Jeremiah's saying, you know, uh, the human heart is a treacherous thing. Who can endure it or who can understand it? And so there can be these profound contradictions within us that exist. And it's best from the beginning to humbly acknowledge that, that you know, we can see both this darkness and light within us that we struggle with. And sometimes we are more attracted to the things that are dark. And one might even say, you know, there are times where we can find, there can be a pleasure and being miserable uh, that in that feeling. Uh, and when this passion becomes habitual, uh, so it becomes the more regular state for the person that it can feel sort of unnatural to uh, be uh, joyful or pursuing things joyfully that, uh, and it's not just being a curmudgeon. I think it's more, it's, it's kind of taking a delight. It hurts so good in, in this kind of way that uh, we can find a kind of pleasure of being angry, resentful, bitter towards others. That that can feed something in us, in other words. Uh, and it, it's this passion. And it can be, uh, uh, you know, something that is insatiable. Sue and Mark. Yeah, I just had this comment. I remember hearing a long time ago um, about the spiritual life and in my small way, have found this to be true. Um, the God never, like... It's like uh, we're in a room um, with the door shut and there's darkness in the room and God never throws the door open and turns on the light switch because we will choose the darkness because it's so overwhelming. And so he always enters slowly and with a candle mm -hmm. and slowly just kind of enlightens us to the work that needs to be done because if he turned that light and flipped all that which flooded our darkness with light, we would choose that darkness. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was true. Or perhaps to shrink away from it or be overwhelmed by our own poverty. I think God is the divine position. And so will deal with us gently as we struggle with things. And psychologically, I think this proves true as well. I think uh, when we talk to people and or if one is a, a therapist, we never take a sledgehammer to a person's defenses, defense mechanisms, because they're in place for a reason and they protect them on an emotional level. And so if you all of a sudden see those things and you start taking a hammer and whacking at them, don't you see this? Don't you see this? And the next, you know, you drive them. Uh, to a, a, a psychologically very vulnerable state and even to breakdown in doing so. And, uh, and we have to be very careful. St. Philip Neri once said that you never point out a person's natural defects. And uh, with the same kind of tenderness, I think, in mind, and that Sue is sort of pointing to with God, that... We, we never want to uh, go at a person where we are shaming them. And I think even when God reveals those things about us uh, in order to bring healing, it's, it's not to shame us in the sense to break us down uh, as it is so much to free us. And if we were to be thrust into the fullness of the light, I think the, the what Sue had said here, it could be something that's very painful 
there are things that we hide from ourselves even in our examination of conscience. And it's only uh, sometimes over the course of time uh, or through experience, sometimes through trials that we go through that we gradually come to see those things and God shines more light on it in order that we might be able to deal with it more fully, uh, both spiritually and emotionally. And uh, this is, you know, it's often dangerous to, I think for a priest in the confessional for this reason to be harsh. Uh, he might be direct with an individual if he feels that they're being sort of, uh, uh, you know, flippant uh, uh, or treating the, the sacrament improperly, but never being harsh. There should be a gentleness and tenderness there and sympathy to the extreme, sharing in the sorrow of others that a priest should be one who weeps with those who weep uh, within the confessional and, uh, and not, not treat them with this kind of harshness. And especially I think with something like this, when a person finds themselves in this very dark space, you know, a kind of hopelessness about the spiritual life as a whole can emerge. And to find a, a rebuking spiritual father or rebuking priest is not going to, to help. It's more likely to drive them further, further into it, especially if it gives rise to what John says here, you know, that one can be easily angered or embittered. And if you corner someone who is suffering, you know, they're, they're going to seek to defend themselves and most often out of their pain because they're in pain in one form or another, spiritually or emotionally. Uh, Sharon writes, uh, that's so interesting. I find myself unwilling to be around these really negative people. I love them, but I have my own issues battling depression. It's hard to do both at once. Yes, you know, I think it's, uh, one might sympathize, but I, I think uh, it can be very difficult. And uh, anyone who's a therapist and, uh, you know, Louise has a background in this field, this is her field as well, that a lot of the work is in containing uh, that which is painful for people. And uh, to a willingness to enter into that, to suspend judgment and to help them, it's uh, sort of like a, often described like a holding environment where a person feels safe enough that the other is not repulsed by the bitterness or the anger or the things that they've done or suffered throughout their life. And so this is something again, that cannot be learned really fully from books or from seminary. They don't teach you this or prepare you for that uh, to, you know, people will often put you to the test to see if you're willing to endure or, or can endure them. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had individuals say, you know, I, I wanna break every window in your office. I feel like doing that, and and, uh, and I understand it. It's more an expression of the pain that it's experienced internally. But if you haven't been prepared for that, and more importantly, if you have not dealt with that in yourself, if you've not seen that kind of anger or pain within yourself, how is it that you enter into others? One of the things that I've always respected about psychoanalysis is that those who enter into that training have to undergo their own analysis. So for seven to 10 years or longer, they're on the couch four or five times a week doing the very work that they will be doing with others in order that they might understand how those things emerge from the heart that often can be very surprising in their intensity or in their darkness. Uh, not to reveal too much, but uh, uh, I had in my training, I, I had the thought once of my analyst being like the, you know, the Reese's mon monkey experience, like the metal monkey covered with, 
like fur, but not real, no heart. And yet these, you know, little baby monkeys clinging to it. And, but I had to say that to my analysts, this, this is my experience of you, which is like, I'm getting no warmth or understanding from you. And, uh, you know, it has, it ha but it reveals something within oneself because the analyst is behind you. They, you know nothing about them. They'll make comments at times, but what you are doing is projecting what is going on internally. And oftentimes in the middle of analysis, you'll find yourself thinking, gee, I got really sleepy or I got, I, all of a sudden I got anxious or I, I got very angry. And it's then that you begin to sort of unpack what is going on on this deeper level. Well, the same thing happens in the spiritual life where there is this kind of vulnerability before God and the mind and the heart is open to him in prayer. And that includes the very depths of our being. You know, the heart is often described by the father in a way that we would describe it, the unconscious now. And so out of the depths, the heart speaks, uh, or out of the depths, the mouth speaks, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says, that it's really out of these deeper regions uh, that we, we often see the passions that we struggle with the most. And sometimes that's not obvious to us until we enter into spiritual direction, but or enter into prayer very deeply and open our minds and our hearts to him that we begin to see those things. And that can be sort of unsettling in the spiritual life because we might be searching out a kind of peace or stillness or strength in our daily trials. And when we enter into a life of deeper prayer, all of a sudden we find ourselves being attacked by the demons more trying to draw us away from prayer. So we start having temptations and thoughts more than ever before, but then all of a sudden things can emerge in our dreams, in our daydreams, in our thoughts towards the day, in our encounters with others that can be surprising to us and make us feel again, oh my gosh, you know, what does that say about my spiritual life? And a lot of people think th that they're doing something wrong. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, I think when we enter into the spiritual life and we, we are seeking that healing uh, from God, then these things begin to em emerge from deep within. You know, in, in the healings, especially in the casting out of demons in the gospel, uh, it's not as though we read that as past history. You know, we, we all have our, our demons and we all experience our spiritual blindness or this kind of corruption that the lepers experience. It's not that we are to read that in a disconnected fashion, that Christ you know, does the unthinkable and unspeakable and touches the untouchable. Uh, that, you know, to touch a leper, again, would have been, to been for him to be cast out, uh, to be excommunicated, no longer able to enter into the synagogue. People would throw stones at lepers. Lepers would cry out, unclean, unclean, as they went along. And we see Christ touching them physically and uh, or touching dead bodies uh, as well. Uh, and uh, and so this is what he does with us as well, you know, enters into those areas that, again, perhaps we even hide from ourselves, the, the, those kinds of darkness. Uh, Ren, you had your hand up. I wonder, Ren writes, would these people really appear very negative on the exterior? So much of the description involves teaching or speaking, and most often those who take up that role are very dynamic and charismatic personalities. It seems like the melancholy aspect might be kind of hidden. That's a good point, uh, because it can become like that mask. I think John had mentioned hypocrisy earlier, that the religiosity, and even the fervor, this external fervor in speaking about it, 
can be present there, but hide something that is far darker or uh, a life that really is absent of that uh, uh, life of Christ and that love. And so I think you're right here, you know, that it can be something that is more hidden uh, for, for certain individuals. Um, I think there's a point, you know, that maybe we reach with that pain where it becomes pretty hard to hide it. Uh, and, uh, but I think what John shows us here is that one thing can be seen on the surface and something much different uh, can be underneath. So your point's very well taken. You know, the, the suffering there, the darkness might be kept well hidden by this external religiosity. Do you have a follow-up to that or is that what you had in mind? No, no, that's great, thank you. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, where do we leave off? Number five? Yes. As far as my poor powers and knowledge allow, I've exposed the wiles and the wheels of this stony, obstinate, raging, and stupid passion. I've not the patience to expiate on it. He who is experienced and able in the Lord should not shrink from applying healing to the sores. For I'm not ashamed to admit my own powerlessness since I am sorely afflicted with this sickness. I should not have been able to discover its wiles and tricks by myself. I should, uh, if I had not caught it and held it firmly, probing it to make it acknowledge what has been said above and plying it with the scourge of the fear of the Lord and unceasing prayer. So John, sort of in this rare moment of speaking about himself personally, says this is something that he struggled with and had to really wrestle with it and uh, scrutinize it in such a way in order to find out what its origins are, but also how to, how to deal with it. And even as he says, plying it with the scourge of the fear of the Lord and unceasing prayer. So precisely in thinking about one's judgment, uh, but the constancy in prayer, seeking the grace of God in order that it might be exposed. He goes on to say, that is why this tyrant and evildoer said to me, my subjects laugh when they see corpses. When they stand at prayer, they are completely stony, hard, and darkened. When they see the holy altar, they feel nothing. When they partake of the gift, that is the Eucharist, it is as if they have eaten ordinary bread. When I see persons moved by compunction, I'm, I mock them. From my father, I learned to, to kill all good things which are born of courage and love. I'm the mother of laughter, the nurse of sleep, the friend of a full belly. When exposed, I do not grieve. I go hand in hand with sham piety. It's terrifying uh, in many ways because even John, as he speaks to us about exposing it and uh, leading it to describe itself in such detail, uh, in the end, he says, when exposed, I do not grieve because I go hand in hand with the sham piety that one can be engaged even in all the things to combat it. And yet it can be simply a greater cloak of this darkness that lies within. And that is only gradually, again, revealed uh, in the few ways that he will talk about in the remedies coming up in the, in the next paragraphs. So again, I think we're getting a picture of what, why this is one of the more difficult of the passions to deal with, because the very things that we engage in in the spiritual life then are used against us and by it to draw us into greater darkness. Number six, I was astounded at the, uh, at the words of this raving creature and asked him, her about her father wishing to know his name. And she said, I have no single parentage. My conception is mixed and vacillating. 
Satiety nourishes me, time makes me grow, and bad habit entrenches me. He who keeps this habit will never be rid of me. So there are all these things out of which it can emerge, a full belly, uh, time. So neglecting the spiritual life and allowing that to persist, allowing the, the habit of that negligence to persist over time only deepens it uh, and entrenches it within us. And so once we become, it becomes a habit, he says, we won't be rid of it. Be constant and vigil. I'm sorry, hold on for one second. Be constant and vigil. So he's speaking of the remedies now, meditating on the eternal judgment. Then perhaps I shall, to some extent, relax my hold on you. So the reality of standing in the full light of truth, standing before God, is one of the things that can uh, lift a person out of this, uh, do enough to jar them and this insensibility uh, to awaken them from it. Find out what caused me to be born in you, and then battle against my mother, for she is not in all cases the same. So we have to figure out, there's a lot more work with this particular passion. We have to figure out where it emerges for us. Is it in something like negligence of prayer or overeating and, and things such as that? And so what do we really need to address here to uproot it? Pray often at coffins and engrave an indelible image of them in your heart. And so John isn't being unique here. I found, in fact, the, the same thing described uh, almost verbatim in St. Mark the Ascetic this, this morning in the, in the Philokalia, where he talks about this, you know, praying at graves or going to the cemetery. Uh, that for all of us, that might seem like a very odd thing to do. But when we know ourselves to be in the grip of something like this, uh, these reminders uh, of death. So this is why monks would keep us, you know, at times a skull on their desk. We'll see that, you know, paint, painted in certain images or we'll, where the monastery will have an ossuary. So once the, uh, the, uh, bodies have corrupted and the bones uh, alone exist, they'll put them all in one place. And often you'll see these photographs of monks at various monasteries praying at these sites in the presence of the remains of all the monks who have gone before them and fought the same fight. That uh, in that they're awakened, again, this spirit of mourning is awakened, but also courage to do battle uh, with, with these particularly difficult passions. For unless you inscribe it there with the pen of fasting, you will never conquer, conquer me. So uh, an interesting thing here. So he ties the mourning and the remembrance of death and judgment to fasting in particular, that uh, we need to weaken the passion by humbling the body. If it's fed by our negligence, then we, we need to strengthen ourselves through the practices of, of asceticism and uh, fasting in particular, along with, with compunction and mourning. So very difficult one. I'm sure that wasn't uh, what you desired for your Wednesday night reading. It's uh, hard to feel uplifted. By it, but you know when when I first read this, uh, first uh, in Cassian's description of the eight vices in the first volume of the Philokalia, he begins to lay this out just in a couple of pages, and it, it was the first time I had, had ever heard of it. And yet, over the course of time, you begin to see how consistent of a struggle it is, and how dangerous it can be. And, uh, and so even though this is the heaviest, one of the heaviest of the steps to read, I think it can also be the, the most important. And it, it's hard because it doesn't hold out 
the concrete things as that are spoken of in some of the other steps. This is one that we, we really have to engage in a kind of scrutinizing of what's going on within our heart. What, what is giving birth to this? And if it varies from person to person, and we can even have this uh, predisposition towards it because of our character or life history, we have to be willing to do this kind of self-examination that is more than superficial. Ren. I've been told that this or something very similar to it can be caused by tra a traumatic event, particularly one involving the church in some way. Are fasting and vigil still the only way to begin fighting it in this case? Yeah, you know, I think this is why, uh, you know, when we hear these stories of abuse or when we hear stories where people have been traumatized within the context of the Christian community in one way or another, treated poorly, that uh, it's so damaging uh, because it affects the way that they view God and the mercy of God. And uh, I think whenever this happens, uh, one has to, as a priest, guide an individual to Christ specifically. That, that that relationship might be become concrete and uh, as possible, and that there would be a simplicity of focus there. That it often becomes very difficult to engage in the various forms of piety in the spiritual life or spiritual practices that perhaps we've engaged in for a long period of time. And when we find ourselves drawn into this, or especially through something that has been uh, a traumatic event, we might find going to mass very difficult or saying the rosary or what might be tied to certain experiences within the church. And so to draw a person uh, to this kind of simplicity in their spiritual life and to encourage them not to feel guilty about that. You know, I know people that have been abused by their, their mothers or at a very early age, or, uh, or, and so the, praying the rosary and even hearing how people talk about the rosary in our day, and, you know, marry our mother, and that the, the, the rosary is the spiritual weapon of our day, you know, and I'm not disputing, I don't want it to sound like I'm disputing that or diminishing uh, the rosary or devotion to, to Mary, but for certain individuals, that it can be a very painful thing when the first thing that somebody says to them, whether priest or layperson, to whom they might reveal their struggle, is, well, you should take up the rosary or turn to marry your mother. Well, what, what if your mother was a tyrant or an ab abuser? Then, you know, it's not, that's not going to offer much comfort to you. And so, you know, sit, perhaps someone sitting in silence before the Blessed Sacrament, you know, without feeling the need to say anything or to make use of the Jesus prayer, simply to be mindful of God or to engage in certain spiritual reading that might speak to them in a different way than what they read in the past. Maybe what they need is somebody who writes with a kind of sensibility, you know, a sensitivity to woundedness. And there are certain writers like that. You know, I find uh, the, the work Prayers by the Lake uh, by Father Nikolai Valimerich, you know, to be very comforting uh, that uh, a more contemporary female writer, what's her name? Carol Houselander. I don't know if any of you are familiar with her. Uh, just ever so beautiful. I haven't come across anything that she's written that hasn't spoken to me deeply. Uh, this uh, French priest, Gaston Courtois, 
he wrote back in the 1940s, and he, a lot of his work was with women, with giving retreats to women rel religious. But a part of his writings were often in this colloquy form of this dialogue between the soul and God. And they are very beautiful and healing. And, uh, and so uh, the Psalms would be another example of this that speak of so many of the different wounds that one experiences either at one's own hands or at the hands of others. And so often can be a source of healing as well. And uh, so there has to be you know, a kind of understanding. I think a person in these circumstances does need a confidant or a few confidants, uh, one who has some experience with, with this and can guide with a gentle hand. You know, I think in our own day, uh, because of so many things going on in the world, there can be a kind of reaction to those things. And a lot of our religious discussion at times can slip into a kind of moralism, of legalism, or focusing on controversies. Uh, there can be a kind of uh, aggression that uh, is behind them, an anger that is behind uh, those discussions. And, you know, doctrine is important in our understanding of liturgy. But, uh, you know, a person who's in the trenches and has been deeply wounded needs, uh, what is that care that the mash units would give, you know, uh, huh? What's it called, Carol? It's triage, right, triage, that uh, you need to focus upon where the person is wounded the most in order to help help them persevere through what is a very difficult and painful time. Because especially if they are drawn into then this kind of spiritual darkness uh, because of it, then it becomes very easy to move away from all one spiritual life altogether. And, you know, in, again, in psychology, you know, they often talk about reparative relationships that you know, this kind of uh, relationships with others over the course of time where trust is experienced as something that can exist, where one is not, one's vulnerability is not taken advantage of and where it's respected and held to be something precious. And so, you know, there has to be this willingness upon the part of the church to, to be with an individual who has experienced these wounds as long as it takes, uh, precisely if uh, the wounds came in and through those who are acting in the name of the church. Uh, Carol writes, can you please repeat the name of the French priest? Oh, somebody did already, Gaston Courtois, uh, superb. And there have been a couple of his works, daily meditations that have been uh, published recently, uh, but you can still find uh, a lot of, you know, the full books uh, in circulation uh, if you just search for them. But superb, superb writer. Uh, I've, I found those writings in recent times, colloquy, uh, the divine intimacy work uh, has a sort of a Carmelite bent to it, uh, but always uh, each reflection on a spiritual topic ends with this colloquy, again, this dialogue between the soul and God, and th those can be immensely helpful and comforting and healing because again it pulls us out of the mind or pulls the mind into the heart and allows i think for a deeper kind of healing to take place he and i someone wrote is another good one yes uh gabrielle bossi i think is uh, that's not french that's italian right i, I think that's <laughs> b-o-s-s-i 
yes, excellent. David Swiderski writes, my experience is this often is connected to resentment and lack of detachment. Anyone digging up wounds from the past or worrying about the future cannot help themselves from falling into despair. Absolutely. And uh, I think, uh, you know, there are times where we do have to acknowledge the wounds of the past or the anxieties that we have. Uh, but I think where the Christian uh, has the advantage in this regard is to do that in the context of the moment and of the relationship with Christ, not abstracting these realities, the sufferings and the trials that we've borne of the past or the things that give rise to that bitterness or the, our fears or anxieties about the future, but we think about them in the context of that relationship with God. And, you know, I think this is one of the reasons that the Eastern Fathers move away uh, from prayer that is overly discursive or that keeps us in our mind in such a way where we do find ourselves trapped in the cycle of rumination, that they, they've found that the, the quicker path to healing is simply to bring oneself to Christ. And, uh, you know, this is why we should also be praying for others, uh, because there are times when people cannot do that. Uh, that uh, the perfect gospel for this is where uh, the to, you know a group of friends bring an individual who cannot bring himself to Christ. They rip open the roof and lower him down into Christ's midst. And this is something, again, that isn't past history, but I think that we are called upon. And in fact, the gospel say, says that Jesus, seeing their faith, seeing the faith of the individuals that bring the one who's wounded to him, is what then provokes him to, to heal the individual. And I think it's important for us not to forget that, that we would be praying for those who have been wounded or who might find themselves in this state unable to pray for themselves or those who've been wounded by the church who experienced some trauma in that regard, that we would be praying for their, their healing, that we would carry them to Christ. Louise writes, in my clinical experience, it was my willingness as a psychotherapist to be there with them, to remain with them, despite the intensity of their pain, which was healing. I did not abandon them as they were experiencing abandonment, depression from early childhood. Right. And, you know, I, I think part of our problem is that we want to fix things. But when you're dealing with the mystery of the human person, we can't do that. You know, we can't say as much as we try in modern society tries to do that. Like psychopharmacology, there is a value to that. We've seen that it's helped people function, you know, and draw them out of anxiety or depression to such an extent that they're able even to engage in the work that they need to, but it still doesn't deal with understanding what gave rise to the depression or the anxiety, where the wounds lie. And, uh, and we've been moving, you know, I think both spiritually and psychologically to these uh, forms of uh, psychotherapy, healing of the soul, or healing of, of the emotions in terms of secular psychotherapy uh, to looking for something quick, programmatic, you know, short-term that is going to alter our experience of God or ourselves or our emotional life. And everything that we read in the Fathers shows us that in some ways, this betrays our lack of understanding of the human person, the beauty of the human person, but also the depth of that mystery, and that no two people are alike. And so to present this kind of programmatic view of the spiritual life is to really lack a, a real and deep Christian anthropology and psychology. Here we're finding the Father saying, you know, people have different temperaments and predispositions. And often what gives birth to these various passions can vary from person to person. And so whoever's offering spiritual guidance or if you're struggling with these things yourself, it's important to be able to, to understand that. 
So all great questions and comments again tonight. So uh, we're moving through some of the, these are some of the smaller steps. So I don't want to rush through them, even though they're uh, smaller. So I'm not going to do more than one or two on an evening, even if they are very short. Uh, I think uh, we need time to just sort of unpack them. And this, as we see, was an important one to do that with. Okay. So while we were at 835, we'll wrap it up there for the evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. You know, I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.